I got a lot to talk about. So you have been blogging. You, I, you're like in like a fugue state, honestly, because you are. I know firsthand. I might. We won't talk Vesper here, but much. But I do know internally that you are uh, in a super productive mode there. But you're also super productive publicly on Inessential, like for the last couple of months. Yeah, those two things really go together well for me. Actually, um, uh, they feed each other. Um, I, I have that, I don't know what to call it, a writer's instinct, a publisher's instinct, something where I really like to make stuff public, whether it's code or, or writing. And I'm happiest when I can do that. So if I'm just writing code, you know, and it's a while between releases and I'm not doing any, you know, public communication at all, I'm actually less productive, even though technically I suppose I'd have more time. Hmm. But I'm just less, I'm just kind of less happy about it. So I really like writing. I was a writer before I was a coder, and I'll probably be a writer after I'm a coder. And so, you know, it makes me happy. It makes me, it also lets me work stuff out kind of in public and get feedback and learn things. And um, a lot of the stuff I've been doing, I've literally been like, I have a problem. I'll sit down and start writing how to solve it. I just happen to write it in Mars Edit and then press publish at the end. And do you think you get the answer because you've thought it through by writing it, or you get the answer then because you publish it and somebody who reads your site, you know, ships in with the answer? Both, actually. Uh, sitting down to, to write it gets me a lot of the way there, and sometimes all the way there. Uh, but then sometimes the feedback uh, that I get will, will make me change my mind in, you know, small ways or big ways about, uh, about what I decided. I mean, it is, you know... Uh, far from an original ob observation, it's a famous observation, but writing is thinking. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you can't write it out, uh, you, you haven't thought it through. And sometimes when you do write it out, you, you, you've got to be, I'm always, I always want to be ready when I'm writing something out. If it's like an argument or if I have a point I'm trying to make, if it's not a open-ended question, be careful that by the time you get to the end, you haven't changed your mind. And you don't mm -hmm. know it, you know, and don't be, you know, and then you may have to go back and rewrite the whole thing, but don't be afraid to do that. And I can't tell you how many times like a piece, longer pieces for Daring Fireball. By the time I get to the end, I think, wait a second, I've just, I've just convinced myself of the other point just by writing it all out. Yeah, I'm not surprised. It's certainly the same way for me. That's a, that's a very common thing. I have a lot of developer friends, though who I find, you know, and, and who on and off over the years have had very enjoyable, to me, blogs that go dark for huge periods of time. And a lot of times, and if I, you know, I won't give them a hard time about it, but if I'll say something to them about it, they'll just be like, yeah, I've been, I've just been so busy programming or working that mm -hmm. it's like that. And I feel like with you, it's the other way, like you said, it's the other way around. Like when you're most productive working, you're also most productive blogging, even on stuff that's not related to your work, though. Yeah, that's true. I, yeah, I love blogging. I've been doing it since 1999. It's, you know, I, and, and if you look at the software I've made, it's always been about reading and writing. That's, that's what I really love. And that's what I first saw uh, in the web. And it's what made me become a programmer because it was this great, uh, great platform for reading and writing. Uh, so it's no surprise that, you know, I do a lot of reading and writing, and that's that's when I'm happy. And when I'm happy, I'm productive. Uh, so one of the things you've been writing about this week, maybe the last week and a half, are uh, 
it's a, it's a broad topic, and I don't want to get into it. I want to get into it at sort of a layman's level because there's mm-hmm. so many other sites uh, or 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 podcasts like Debug and and even uh, Marco and Syracuse and the other guys show ATP um, that can get into more technical discussions. Um, but this whole thing about Objective C and the future of programming on Apple's platforms is it always going to be objective c or is there some other language that that's going to come in and a newer style language that's going to come in and supersede it eventually and this is this is like the most evergreen of topics because um i forget when john syracuse started writing about it but he called it copeland 2010 so he must have must have been back in like 2005 2006 um yeah, close to 10 years ago, I think. That yeah. he started writing like, hey, you know, I'm not saying they have to do it, you know, it's typical Syracuse reasonableness. But uh, it seems like they should eventually, you know, there, there's got to be some point in the future where it just seems antiquated that you're writing in a language that has pointers. Yeah, that's that's true. And part of it, I think, is that a lot of developers can sort of feel that there's a revolution. Um but we don't know what it looks like. Uh, we can guess, yeah, languages won't have pointers, perhaps. But it just feels like there has to be a better, faster way to do what we're doing. There's still right. a lot of like fiddliness, you know? Right. And and for um, the, the non-programmers out there, a pointer is a variable that points to a space in memory directly. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you screw up a pointer, you're, you're probably going to crash, right? I mean, that's safe to say, or you're going to, the program's going to go awry. Right, things that go wrong. Um, the way I've the way I usually explain a pointer is to say that there's a difference between your house and the address of your house. Yes. Right. So the pointer is the address of your house. Right. And, uh, if you get that wrong, well, you're in the wrong you end house. Up with the wrong house. Yeah, right. And then you start doing things, thinking, yeah, that's a perfect analogy. And you think you're in your house, and you start doing things, and it ends up you're you know you're taking a bath in somebody else's house. Yeah. Right. Everyone's surprised and. Right. Shit burns down. Yep. <laughs> I was going to make another analogy, but I figured <laughs> I don't want to tempt the explicit monitors that I do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going there in my head too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I love. I'm a sucker for, especially as I get older, I'm a sucker for analogies, uh, you know, like such and such is as old now as blank was then, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, we're, I think, oh God, I, I think this is one from, I think this is true, right? Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, we're about as far away from, the time of the first Back to the Future movie as Back to the Future was from 1955 the, or whatever year it was they went back to, right? It was mm. like 30, he went back in time 30 years. Well, now we're yeah, 30 right. years ahead, uh, which is crazy, right? It doesn't feel like like Back to the Future was as long ago as when he went back. It felt like he went back to the Stone Ages, right? Sure. Well, because he went back to before we were born. Right. Yeah. So uh, Objective-C is a really weird thing that was glommed on top of C, mm-hmm. right? They, they, it was the, the, the people, the geniuses behind it, it was, C had no object orientation built into it. But C is sort of was, and still probably is, sort of the bedrock language of all programming. 
Yeah, and is remarkably plastic. So you can do stuff like make Objective-C out of it. Right. Uh, but everybody agrees, I think, and agreed, certainly agreed when it first came out, that it its syntax is weird. Because they said, "Look, it, it's just a superset of C, so you can always you're always in C, uh, but you can if it's an Objective C file, you can do these other things, mostly you know, largely with like square brackets, and make it object oriented." Mm -hmm. uh, and they did this because they had good C compilers uh, that they could build on top of, and they just needed to like the first versions of Objective C. It was just a preprocessor, right? As I recall, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's like the story. Mm -hmm. you just sort of behind the scenes, rewrote your Objective C as C, and then compiled it as C, and then you you it ran, mm -hmm. um, and it made a lot of sense. And it's a typical uh, sort of from the minds that were behind the whole next system, a sort of let's not boil the ocean. What's the least we could do? Mm -hmm. mindset but the thing is th this is what to me is is nutty so, so that was around 1988 1989 i don't know when objective c was a, was created but that's when next started using it and and for all intents and purposes you know if next hadn't used objective c probably nobody today would have even heard of it it would have been long gone yeah. right uh it would have been just like an experiment like a mm -hmm. historical footnote yeah but C was only from, what, around 1970 or so, right? 1968, 1969, 1970. So C was only 20 years old. But I remember when I was like in high school and Next came out and I was reading about it in magazines, it seemed like, well, of course these guys would build it on C, C, this ancient language <laughs> that, that was ubiquitous. But it's only 20, it was only 20 years old at the time. Yeah, Whereas right. now Objective C has been around at least in the next step, you know, frameworks used as the basis for all the next step and Mac OS X and iOS frameworks uh, since 1989. So it's it's actually been the foundation of the whole next derived operating systems for longer than C existed when they got started, mm -hmm. and they're still still. I was about to say stuck with it, and that's pejorative. I don't want to be pejorative, but they're still using it. Yeah, right. And so I think there's just an argument just on based on the timeline that maybe, you know, maybe something newer should have come out by now. Yeah, but, you know, at, so at the same time, if you compare today's Objective-C to what was, uh, what people were writing in 1989, yeah, the old stuff is recognizable. You still have those square brackets, but it's really changed a ton. Right. Uh, and that goes to, you know, Apple's, Apple's typical method of, of incremental changes, you know, lots of small mini revolutions as opposed to, you know, hey, here's your whole new language and frameworks and all that kind of stuff. Right. It's, um, it's, I certainly don't mean to imply that it is, has been unchanged. It's probably yeah, added right. more than they added at the, at the origin. Yeah. And, you know, in many ways, um, um, it is it is easier to write apps than it was, um, you know, ten years ago. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff we could do very easily that we couldn't do then, and that that's been due to changes in Objective C and the and the frameworks. Um, blocks are a big part of that. For instance, it makes um, and Grand Central Dispatch it makes handling multi-threading and concurrency a lot easier than it used to be, which is great, which is fantastic. Still though, still though, it's still it still feels like we're using this really, really old stuff, and then there are, there's just got to be a better way. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of that really came to light and and hit a flashpoint, and then has since died down during the gold rush era of iOS development, like the first let's say let's say two thousand eight two thousand nine, when it it became a huge sensation to be writing iPhone apps. And the App Store was growing, you know, every single Apple event, it was like an order of magnitude more. Here's, you know, this is amazing. We've already got 6,000 apps in the App Store. And then it was, you know, a couple months later, we've got 60,000 apps in the App Store. And then it was 600,000 apps in the App Store. Mm -hmm. um, and so you were had this time where all of a sudden there were way more programmers using these frameworks in the language and Apple's developer tools than there ever were before combined, you know, after what, about 20 years, you know, the, yeah. the first 20 years from, uh, 88 until 2008, uh, it was all next. And that was really small, a real small community. Then, then with Mac OS 10, it became like a, a healthy sized community, but still a, a, a niche in the overall programming community. And then with the iPhone, it became one of the top languages in the entire industry. Yeah, and, I never expected that to happen. And I think there were, it, to all those programmers, you know, and it, it, the weirdnesses of it just, it was like, are you guys kidding me? <laughs> right? Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and yet it was an advantage because um, I think Objective-C could write... Um, write code that actually performed well enough, especially on the early iPhones, uh, that that the apps ended up being better than apps on competing platforms. Right. And some of it is just stylistic, and it, it has nothing to do with the language. Like, one of the things that some people uh, object to is the fact that, um, I think it goes, it dates all the way back to the next years, but it's it stays through to today, that Apple's APIs tend to be... Um, like if you have a a, um, a command to call, it tends to be very verbose and explicit. You know, I'm mm -hmm. looking at your blog right now, and it, it height for timeline note, and it's it, they're going to spell that out. They're not going to make short little abbreviated um, function calls like in traditional C or in certain other languages. Um, that's a stylistic note, and that that would not change. There's no way that would change if if and when Apple moves to a new language. It's it's the the language itself that I think is controversial. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, the the style it's it's a good style. I mean, we have autocomplete, right? So I hardly ever actually have to type something like height for timeline now. I type H E and it suggests what I want, and you know, I hit return in it, and it goes. Uh, but it really makes for nicely readable code, and if we were using some other language, I would definitely want to use that same that same style. And I think uh, most Mac developers, most iOS developers, I hope would agree. Yeah. Was your before you were writing with the Cocoa frameworks? Were you when you would write your own code? Was you were you was your style as verbose? I think I tended toward using real words over abbreviations. Right. Uh, except for common things like, you know, um, the variable I for a loop, you know, obviously. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I think I think I wrote a little bit as if it was a writer writing code. So 
And I think that's exactly what the Apple style is, is that mm. it's meant to be readable. And that it does, it dates back to a time before most editors had autocomplete and stuff like that. Like famously, I think that in the early years, Next developers were using text edit to write uh, to write their code. Ouch. Yeah, I, I would. You know, I'm glad I did not work on this in the days before uh, autocomplete because it makes a huge difference, obviously. Right. Um, but I think it frees them to be a little bit more verbose. Yeah, sure. Um, so compare and contrast with with Microsoft, and Microsoft has moved. Um, it's not that you can't write C or C plus plus code, but that they have C sharp, which is a, you know, it's a more Java like language and it's, you know, got a lot more modern syntactical, uh, elements. And I'm not saying it's better. I'm just saying it's clearly more modern. Um, I've it, seen a little bit of C sharp and, um, you know, it actually does look pretty good. Uh, but I don't know a ton about it. Right. And it's, it's, it's not C sharp in particular, but there's just the fact that Microsoft had clearly had been working on it, you know, and, and had a sort of long-term plan that we, you know, we need to, we need to have a language that is, that has these traits of a modern language, you know, eventually. And they've had it, you know, it's been out for years now and yet Apple is still on objective C. I wonder um, how much of that was just kind of recognizing a good opportunity. Uh, originally, they had, uh, correct me if I get details wrong, but they were using Java, and they were adding methods to Java, and Sun probably sued them. Yeah, there was something for, like that. Right, so C Sharp is basically like, all right, well, we're not going to use Java. We're going to use something just like Java, only with those extra methods. Yeah, <laughs> and a couple uh, of syntactical differences. Right, and so, you know, it's... Um, yeah, in a way, it's a, a child of Java, not a fork exactly, but kind of. Right. And but but then they were smart enough to realize, hey, this is this is an important thing, and we can add add all kinds of goodness to it, which they've done. Uh, so you wrote one of your pieces over the last week or two is imagining a scripting language, where instead of picking one specific language and saying. You know, maybe here's the language that Apple should go with. It was just a sort of hypothetical um, what if, and there was mm -hmm. a language that had these features. Um, and the gist of it, though, is that it, it would make things a lot easier for you as a programmer if the language worked as intended. Uh, it should eliminate certain types of errors that you can make in a language like Objective-C that are mm -hmm. sometimes hard to track down. Um, but then you asked at the end, would I use this language? And one of the big stopping points would be that if it, and this would be a, a in, in, a, in a compiled language like Objective-C, you run the code through a compiler and out of the compiler comes a binary blob of executable code. And that's what the the computer runs. In a scripting language, you you might compile at runtime, but it's actually the the code that ships in the app. That and that to, you pointed out would be the the sort of big whoa. I don't know if I could use this. Right. In other words, mm -hmm. that the app bundle itself might have a tiny little bit of executable code that you can't really read the source code to, but then huge chunks of the app would ship 
in source files in the app bundle that anybody could just show bundle contents and go in there and start peeping through. Right. Now, that, that technical problem is fairly easy to solve because a scripting language can typically be compiled down to some form of bytecode, uh, which is not quite as opaque as a binary, uh, the binary code, but fairly close. So well, let's... That, that, that post was, in a way, me thinking about getting, getting, taking the long and weird way around to thinking about what if we just open sourced our apps routinely? Right. What what would go wrong? Well, and that's that's what I wanted to. That's where I was kind of going. And and yeah. let's let's call it capital O open source is when you actually publish the source code and you put an official license on it. You know the MIT license or the BSD license or uh, you know the GPL or something like that, and officially open source it. As opposed to let's call it lowercase O open source where you don't license it, you don't give anybody permission to to do the things that officially open source apps can do, but that the source code is just there in the app for people to look at. Mm -hmm. Sort of like, I, I would compare that to the way the web largely works, right? Like Daring Fireball is not open source, but you know, it, it famously, you know, it's, it's how almost all, you know, in the 90s, how we all learned to build websites, you can go to the view menu, view source, and there's the HTML and the JavaScript and the CSS for your website. Mm -hmm. Like what would happen if our apps were, were more like that? I think that's a very interesting what if. I think I'd actually really enjoy that a lot. Uh, and part of me would just enjoy it as as uh, going back to my blog, it would give me more to write about and more concrete examples. I'd be like, here, look at this thing in my source code. Uh, see what I did there? What do you think of that? That kind of thing. Um, I'd really like that. And, and if other people could, could learn from it or uh, tell me, you know, how I could do things differently, etc. That would be really cool. I mean, I, I'd enjoy that. I think the web community has had a lot of that and we have not. Yeah. And I don't think that that lowercase o open source nature of the web hurt the innovative designers and developers who made the most and still make you know the most clever designs and figure out the coolest tricks i don't think anybody really suffered from that um copy and paste ability I mean, sure, it enabled some people to do wholesale, just rip off the whole website type ripoffs. Um, that would maybe wouldn't have been possible if the web had been some kind of binary blob mm -hmm. format. Um, but I don't know that that really, as annoying as it can be, and, I, and I've certainly seen it over the years. Uh, I think as the daring fireball design gets older, it's it's not happened as much recently, but. Um, you know, my site's been ripped off a lot of times and it's annoying, but it's not like anybody's ever ripped it off and set me back, right? Not like sure. I've never mm -hmm. lost a reader because somebody has a site that's a clone of mine. I've never lost a, a advertising dollar because of it. Mm -hmm. And usually if you send a person, if somebody, you know, if you send them an email and say, Hey, that's not cool. They, they change it. Yeah. A lot of the times it's people who really have no idea that that's not cool. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure that it would, you know, that the effect wouldn't be similar with apps. Yeah, I kind of feel like it would be. I mean, there, there's the fear that, oh, someone 
you know, does the ripoff, right? They, they just kind of reskin things, change it from blue to green, publish it with their own name and, uh, you know, and, uh, make money that we should have made. But again, that's like someone will notice and someone will write to them. Um, you know, there are mechanisms for handling that kind of bad behavior. Uh, but in general, people would would learn from. I, I know I would love to see the, the source for other apps sometimes. I'm like, how did they do that? I'd love to know. Especially if it wasn't entirely copy and pasteable. Like if there was a, just a, a wee bit of... Uh, you know, I'll go back a, bi- so a wee bit of executable binary blob in there so that somebody who's um, who truly just has the intention of cloning the app couldn't quite just copy and paste the whole app bundle. Mm-hmm. But if most of the app were like that, and if you saw this cool effect of, uh, you know, the way that a, a, a little uh, action sheet pops off the screen and it doesn't look like it's not the system default way that it's dismissed it's another way and you want to see how did they do that and mm, you could right. just open it up and say oh i see they did it they did it this way i i think most programmers who are, who are beyond the beginning stage aren't really looking for a copy and paste code at least when it comes to ios and mac apps they're looking for techniques they want to understand how, how you did something they don't necessarily want that code but if they can see how you put that together how you got a certain effect or whatever, then they can duplicate that uh, in their own way, in their own code, rather than copy and paste. Right. Uh, And, you know, that's a cool thing. Let me take a break. Let me take our first break and thank our first sponsor. And it's our good friends at Transporter. File Transporter. Basic idea. They've been on the show before, but if you don't, haven't heard of them. Basic idea is it's sort of like Dropbox, except you buy a hardware device. Uh, or more of them, multiple of them, and spread them around. And you get Dropbox-like anywhere you are, any device you're on, access your data, except it's 100% private because your data is stored on your device or your devices and nowhere else. The cloud is only used for coordinating your file transporters and your devices, your Macs, your iPhones to connect through the various firewalls and et cetera, to talk to your file transporters. These guys have been around for, I think a little over a year and I just cannot, I can't even imagine how, I can't even imagine how good their timing is given all of the stuff that's gone on in the last year regarding um, government spying and stuff like that on, on cloud-based services and the concern people have about storing certain types of files, and maybe even legally, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, stuff that you have uh, signed a contract or something that you have to keep private or keep on your own devices. Um, Just amazingly good timing. Uh, Here's a stat that they sent me. Um, This is amazing. So this is from earlier this month. March 4th, in the first year of shipments, transporter owners have deployed 10 petabytes of storage. That's 10,000 terabytes. Wow. Or or 10 million gigabytes of storage. That's how much there's been deployed uh, by transporter owners. Pretty soon you're talking about real storage. (laughs) I yeah, it's I actually had to like look that up because I didn't know what a petabyte was. 
tons of tons. I mean, that's, I don't know if it actually would weigh tons because the devices are actually pretty small. So maybe it's figurative tons, not literal tons, but it's a ton of storage. Um, and the prices are really great. Super easy software that you can install on your Mac. Um, uh, they have an iPhone app. Um, they have uh, a $99 device called the Sync that you can connect to your own USB hard drive uh, and use that. They have a $199 model with 500 gigabytes of storage. The most popular, they have a 249 model with a terabyte of storage built into it. Uh, and then at the high end, they have a 349 model um, that is two terabytes. Uh, you just connect this little thing. It's so easy. You put it on your home network. Uh, you can connect one at your home, one at your office, and they'll just sync to each other, and they'll both have the same amount of data. Uh, so it's a nice way to replicate data across two locations. Um, really, really easy to set up. And most important fact that separates them from, from truly cloud-based services, 100% private. Where do you go to find out more? Go to filetransporter.com slash talk, T-A-L-K, filetransporter.com slash talk. My thanks to uh, File Transporter. So... Uh, Talking about baking apps with uh, a mix of scripting languages and and compiled code, do you remember the C four talk um, from a couple of years ago from Troy Gall, who was at Adobe at the time, about the way that they architected Lightroom? Yeah, they they use a lot an awful lot of Lua. Yeah, yeah exactly. I thought that was cool. So yeah. it and. It, at first, you might think, well, that's crazy because Lightroom is a professional photo management tool, uh, is super CPU intensive. Like, I use Lightroom. I'm a happy Lightroom user all the way from 1.0. It is the probably the number one app on my system that actually stresses my, my computer. Uh, and, and not in large ways, but, I, you know, it's just doing a lot you know like the modern camera if i if you shoot in raw they're just big files with lots of pixels and and interpreting raw photos is is processor intensive and then you apply sure. filters and all these things and they all show up live um but so the thing is that stuff the stuff that you think of the image manipulation is all written in i don't know c or c plus plus you know but some kind of traditional high performance language and it's shared code across the Adobe suite, you know, it's the way that, you know, it's very, that's why they call it, the official name is Adobe Photoshop Lightroom. But mm -hmm. the, you know, it's the same image processing engine from Photoshop. It's the interface that's largely written in Lua. Which totally makes sense. I, I, I bet people don't realize what percentage of code is actually interface code. And a lot of that is just really tedious, boring stuff, like make sure the button is disabled when, you know, some bit of data has changed. And there's just an enormous amount of that stuff that even goes into apps like, uh, like Lightroom or even small iPhone apps like ours. Um, and none of that has to be CPU intensive. It's just like, you know, something changed, update the display slightly, uh, you know, that it's, it's never going to be slow. Um, yeah, you need, you need C or Objective-C for the slow parts, but the rest of it, yeah, heck, you find the slowest scripting language and it'll still be a thousand times faster than what you need. Uh, 
and I'm I'm 99% sure that you can do what we were talking about and pop open the Lightroom bundle and if you poke around in there you'll find Lewis scripts. And it doesn't in any way enable somebody to uh you know do a, a Lightroom clone. It just shows you the uh the way they've done some of the interface. Mm-hmm. Uh I think that's super interesting, and uh, it's sort of a, a a living example of of the thing you you know the sort of thing you're talking about. But it's weird because Lightroom's been out for a number of years now, and it doesn't seem to have that method of architecting an app doesn't seem to have caught on. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not aware of anybody else who's doing that. Although I guess a lot of games. That's the one thing I remember is that a lot of games are like that. Where they'll write the hardcore graphic stuff, you know, in in C or something like that, but the setup menus and stuff like that, the stuff that's not intensive, is often written in a scripting language, and it's often Lua. Yeah, I've heard that Lua is real big for games, and in games you can you can see why the not necessarily Lua is the choice, but that some scripting language is the choice because they're often designed to be cross-platform, and they're using their own uh, UI stuff rather right. than uh, UI kit so much. So, yeah, it does make sense to do it that way, particularly for games. Uh, the problem with doing it for something like something like our app, or more traditional iOS or Mac app, is that you lose the, um, the built-in tools for doing debugging, performance analysis. Um, I, would, I would bet that autocomplete isn't going to work. So you're kind of slowed down an awful lot. And, and that's a shame. Because the idea behind using a scripting language is to, you know, develop more rapidly. Um, scripting languages are fun. Maybe that's why yeah. they're more rapid. But, you know, there's usually less fiddly bits to worry about. So you can move quickly. But if you can't, you know, if you don't have the built-in Xcode tools for this, it, it's actually slower and more difficult. I, I, I apologize for not having a better memory, especially if Troy is out there and he listens to the show. Uh I don't know if Adobe has good debugging tools for their Lewis stuff, but I do know that they are the way they set up the cross-platform framework. It's the it's genius and it's the right way. It's that and I know that Lightroom looks largely the same when you run it on Windows, and this is one of the reasons why they architected it this way, where they have their own sort of non-interface related image processing library at the heart, and that's cross-platform. And then they write these Lewis scripts for the interface, and that's cross-platform. But like when the Lewis script says, give me a text field here, it's a native text field. So the text field you're typing, if you're typing a caption for a photo, you get all the Cocoa text editing shortcuts mm-hmm. running on the Mac. And I presume when you're running on Windows, you get all the Windows ones. And that's the sort of thing where, where cross-platform stuff has all historically fallen down where you get these weird moon man text fields that are like almost like a native text field, but there's, you know, then you try to hit escape to autocomplete a word or something that you can do on the Mac and it doesn't work. And then it's, Oh, that's weird. Right. Yeah. That's totally the wrong way. So you, you, you've got to set things up so that if your script or whatever says, you know, new text field, that there's some layer that says, Oh, which platform am I on? Uh, Right. What what type of text field do I have to return? Yeah, yeah. So I think you're right in the large, and this is one of the things that you've you've written about that 
ultimately, and there's a lot of cool experiments going on out there. What was the what's the new one that you, that sort of got you started on this? It's the uh, objective small talk. Yeah, one of them. I've also looked at new and you and Ruby Motion. Right, other ones. But which is the one where it's 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 like your um, like the the example code was validating a form. Oh, so that's reactive cocoa. Yeah, reactive is, cocoa. Yeah, which is not a new language or anything. It's just um, a new way of doing. It's just it. some stuff. Yeah, right. it's kind of turning cocoa into more functional declarative thing. But the thing is, in order in order to do that, no offense to Rob and the guys, people working on this, but it's just ugly. I'm not gonna do that. It doesn't look like it doesn't look like cocoa code to me. You know. Um, yeah, I could learn to read it and maybe even learn to think it's not ugly, but I just don't want to. With any of these things, though, it's cool that the you know that people are experimenting in the public with them. Yes, but very I think the, cool. the best that you could hope for is not that that the that these outside projects are going to catch on and take over, but that one of them is going to get the attention within Apple and get Apple to officially support it. Because it's like bottom line is if it isn't really part of what Apple is endorsing and publishing, it's never going to have enough integration with the the built-in tools. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's right. And with the community at large, that there's a huge advantage to be writing your code the same way the majority of the developer community is, so that you can you know. If there is like a third-party framework you want to integrate with, it's already you know it's written in the same style. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I've liked about Coco in general is that um, uh, there are very strong conventions for for how to do things, and my code ought to look pretty much like somebody else's code. Um, but at the same time, I am of course very glad that people are experimenting, doing you know. Uh, I got a little pushback on calling Reactive Coco a research project, but I think it is. It's a public research project and I'm glad it's happening and I hope Apple takes note of um, uh, of trends like functional programming and and brings some of this some of this over into Coco. Um, yeah, I these don't guys think, are pushing that a little bit. So I don't think good. research project is is a pejorative at all. I don't think that that's in any way uh, you, you putting it down or dismissing it. You know, it wasn't I, meant to be. Yeah. Right. I, I I think maybe because some research projects in some fields are so pie in the sky and and sort of removed from practicality that that you could see it that way. But th- you know, clearly that's not what they're doing. They're actually saying you can write code today like this. You can use this and ship it, which I maybe is where their objection comes from. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, uh, maybe if. Do you research project implies don't use this in production code? Right, and and yeah, I don't mean I don't mean that at all. Uh, it is, I think, used definitely in production code, um, and the people who like it really really like it, and that's cool. And I want the, I want them to keep using it. I want them to keep pushing. Hmm. I think that's great. I'm just not going to join in on that particular project, though I'm highly sympathetic to it and to its goals. All right, let me take a second break here because I, I know exactly where I want to go from this. Um, but let me take a second break and thank our good friends at Anna Ventapart. Now, you guys know Anna Ventapart. They're a longtime sponsor of this show. They are the conference for web developers and web designers. They have shows 
uh, all over the country this year for you to check out. Upcoming events for an event apart include Seattle, Boston, San Diego, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Austin, Orlando, beautiful Orlando, Florida in late October. Uh, Orlando's beautiful in late October. Not too hot, probably a lot nicer than wherever you're from. Uh, and San Francisco in November. Uh, it's such a great conference. They have the best speakers. Uh, two days of intensely educational learning uh, for practical practitioners of standards-based web design. Uh, they're founded by the web visionaries Eric Meyer and Jeffrey Zeldman, who also happen to be two fantastic speakers. Um, but it's 12 speakers total, two days of inspiration, enlightenment. Uh, and all the little details are so great at an event apart event. They have the best food. They have the best, uh, they even have the best badges, uh, good badges, good swag. Uh, go to, here's how you find out more aneventapart.com slash talk show. Check out the schedules. Check out the dates. If you work as a web developer or designer and you haven't been to an event apart or you haven't been recently, you really owe it to yourself. It is the conference to go to. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, so aneventapart.com slash talk show. And my thanks to an event apart. Uh, so here's maybe the counter argument to you know this i think maybe the big question is does apple does apple did the people inside apple the decision makers who who would sort of be able to pull the trigger on hey maybe we should move start start stepping away from objective c as the 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 language and add a, a higher level scripting language on top of it and then use objective c only for performance intensive things um do they agree with that? Do they see that there's a need for this? And and I I I think from the outside it's indeterminate. I don't think anybody knows. And it's you know typical for Apple that they play their cards close to their vest. Um the 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 catch with moving to a language a, a newer language, a language with cooler, you know, an easier to use language, let's put it that way. Is that it comes with a performance cost, right? An interpreted language runs slower than a compiled language, but it's easier to use an interpreted language as a just as a basic rule of thumb. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, people were calling for this, you know. Like I said, Syracuse wrote his thing in two thousand four or two thousand five, but then a at a time when you know when when you know, the Mac was switching to Intel and Macs were getting way faster and performance wasn't quite so important. But then came the iPhone, which only had 128 megabytes of memory and ran on this at the, you know, even by today's standards, this puny uh, ARM processor. I mean, what was, I think the stat that, that they showed when the 5C uh, or the 5S and 5C came out and they introduced the, the, a7 system on a chip is that it's 40 times faster than the original iPhone CPU mm -hmm. was. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's just face it. The original iPhone as a target for Objective-C was incredibly memory constrained and incredibly slow. 
And so having, you know, you needed every bit of performance that you could get, like having this developer framework ready to go based on a, a, a C-level language was a huge advantage and still probably is to this day, I would, I would think. I mean, I think maybe the modern iOS devices are fast enough that some of the stuff could obviously, you know, and, and like we said, games are, you know, have some interface stuff written in Lua. Um, but as the foundation for Apple's development efforts for the APIs, it makes sense that they were still using a C-level language instead of a higher-level language. Agree? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, they, you know iOS certainly breathed um, a lot of life into Objective-C, I think, and probably extended its its longevity because it was such a huge advantage and to a certain extent still remains so. But for the average app, there is so much so much stuff, just simple UI stuff that might as well be written in a, you know, in the slowest interpreted language that you can think of. And you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Right. You know, for instance, you know, I want to do, I want to animate this stuff from here to there. Uh, the fact that I'm using Objective-C doesn't matter at all because what I'm doing is, you know, I'm, I'm setting, you know, an object's uh, destination frame and opacity or whatever. And then I'm making a call to, to the frameworks that actually does the animation. Well, if I was using a scripting language instead of Objective-C, it'd be the same exact thing. I'm saying, you know, move this from here to there, change its opacity or color or something, and then making you know, essentially that same call into the frameworks to actually do the animation. So the animation would just would be just as fast, just as smooth, absolutely no different. And for all the other, you know, all the other little things, whether you're enabling, disabling buttons or um, swiping from screen to screen or whatever, it makes absolutely no difference that you're using Objective-C versus something, you know, it could be Apple Script, right? It could be right. something terrible and slow. And so much of uh, the average app, non-game app, is just that stuff. And then there's some core that needs to be fast, whether it's image processing or database or, or whatever. Uh, parsing stuff from the web, you want that to be quick. Uh, but, you know, you can you can easily isolate that core. Right. And so, in other words, it's, yeah, I, I like, I, I think my hunch was wrong on that. And, and my thinking was, well, what if the next generation of devices is way smaller still, you know, whether it is a watch or it's a watch size device or something just truly physically tiny compared to even an iPhone. It, it doesn't matter if your app is largely specified in a slow scripting language, as long as the frameworks that it's really, that's actually doing all the work are written in a fast, tight language like Objective-C. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Yep. And I think the old timers out there, us calling Objective C a fast language is probably making them roll their <laughs> eyes, right? Right. Yeah. Because yeah. that was always the knock against Objective C for years was that it because it was this added layer over C and that it wasn't just the language, is that there was this runtime um that was implicit with using it that that it was slow. And it was mm -hmm. in in certain, you know, by certain standards, it was slow. But now sure, we've gotten to yeah. the point where it, it, you know, that that layer of indirection doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't. Still, know. though, there, there have been times in like um, uh, in in the very most performance intensive code I've written, where uh, you know I've gone the direction of more and more 
going straight C over Objective-C. Uh, there's something like that in, in Vesper, but in NetNewsWire, I certainly move that direction with um, um, dealing with RSS parsing, particularly. Because if you're parsing a whole bunch of feeds all at once, and you're creating a whole bunch of Objective-C objects and dealing with you know, things at that, I would call a higher level, um, though, you know, I can imagine higher level stills, but still, you know, it would be slow. And the more I could do stuff in C, uh, things would be a lot faster. But, you know, that's, that's a special case, just right. in that most critical performance, uh, performance intensive area. Otherwise, yeah. Objective-C is so much faster than what we need for, like, everything else. Yeah, like 99% of, of everything yeah. we do. Yeah. Um, so what, what's your hunch? Do you think that Apple has a plan for some sort of next generation language? I don't know. So one thing I've learned about Apple engineers is they're a lot like people who work on, um, on iOS and Mac apps outside of Apple. You know, they have the same kind of interests and they notice the same things and they think about the same things. So my hunch is surely there are people inside Apple who, who, who think like those of us outside who do think. Um, but whether that has actually gotten to the point of anyone making a plan or anyone, anyone seriously doing some work on this, I just have no idea. Yeah, because they can point to their, their approach, which is, you know, we give you, you know, major new upgrades, you know, properties, blocks, all this kind of stuff. And it's working. Look how many apps there are. Look how successful the app ecosystem is. You know, it, you know it's not broken, you know, they could say. Yeah, I, I sort of think so, too. And the other thing, too, I've learned over the years observing Apple is that just the way they think institutionally and it, it always comes back to this, is don't get too focused on any particular solution. Always concentrate on the problem. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes the solution to the problem isn't the thing everybody thinks is the solution to the problem. So at, at, I would say Grand Central Dispatch is a perfect example of that, where the problem is, I, I would say the problem is that um, twofold. One, parallel programming has always been notoriously difficult. Uh, in other words, having multi-threads at the same time running. It's always been a, a it was, I remember in college, it was, a, I don't know how I passed that course. It was, it was, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Uh, uh, and then the second problem is a hardware one, which is that, the the semiconductor industry ran into like the sort of the end of Moore's law where they can't keep putting more trans you know transistors on chips and the gigahertz stopped going up. I mean we've you know we've been stuck at somewhere around three gigahertz for high end CPUs for a long time now. And so the way that we're making CPUs faster is by adding more cores instead of faster mm -hmm. cores. Right. Uh, but that means the only way to take advantage of it is to run more code in parallel. And and the way that GCD works, we don't have to get into the details of it because again, it's you know, this is not a programmer's course, but it's it it wasn't like it when they introduced it at WWDC, it wasn't one of those things like, oh, finally, exactly what we've been asking for. It was a whoa, I've never seen anything like this before. Mm -hmm. That's really that's sounds really clever if it works, as they're saying, but 
it was pretty original. Yeah, well, for one thing, it, it, it took away the idea of threads and had us think about cues, which is a, a higher level of abstraction, which was really nice. Yeah, so I, and, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if... I wouldn't be surprised if the, the problem as Apple sees it is that we should be writing less Objective-C code for our apps if the answer is something different than we should be writing in some other language. And I don't know mm -hmm. what that would be because I'm not clever enough to think of it, but I don't know. Maybe storyboards is a good example of that? Well, certainly Apple likes the idea of um, you know do as much as we can in Interface Builder. I think a lot of developers like that too because everything you do there is a line of code you don't have to write. Um, and so... Uh, in case our listeners aren't aware, the old the old idea was you'd have uh, one file per screen, basically, and you'd lay it out visually. In storyboards, you can kind of put together a whole app or an entire section of your app with the transitions and stuff all all at once, and it's like a storyboard in a movie. Um, but that doesn't necessarily save you a ton of code. I mean, it saves you the same amount of code uh, you used to get saved. Uh, used to save with the with the older method, so I I don't know. I'm still kind of on the fence about storyboards. Hmm. But it's you know I don't know. But it, an interface builder itself has always been. It's obvious you know they it's been there since the beginning, and it was one of you know going back to the next era. Um, you know it was an early ver you know ahead of its time in terms of laying out big chunks of the app visually instead of just in code. But there's mm -hmm. an awful lot of developers I know, yourself included, who in a lot of cases just prefer to do it in code and find it to be easier and less work. Yeah. And well, and part of that is I can eliminate the bouncing around, right? If If it's right there, if it's right there in the code, then I don't have to leave the code to figure out what the heck's going on. I don't have to go over to this other thing where I've visually laid it out. Um, and it also works better with source control management and things like that. Right. Um, I'm not against Interface Builder. We've got, we're actually using a storyboard in our, in our next release of Vesper for a section of the app. And partly it's just because I needed to learn it. But, you know, it, for that section of the app, it actually really makes sense. It's a self-contained thing with a navigation controller and all this kind of stuff. Um, but you don't see it so much as about writing less objective C code than you did before. It's just a different way of using a, a visual interface tool than interface yeah. builder. Yeah, very much so. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it will save some code, but the kind of code that's really simple and easy to write. So it's not that big a deal. Um, but what, I, what I'd love to see in interface builder and in storyboards um, is for people like you and Dave to be able to go in there and actually make it work like it should. Right. You know, it's like, it's going to look like this. And, um, you know, we're close in a lot of ways. I mean, you, you could sit there, someone who isn't uh, a full-time programmer could sit there and lay out text fields and do all this kind of stuff. And then you could even test the interface, see what, see what it's going to look like without attaching it to any code, but it's not really the interface, right? It, the, the fonts won't be right. Um, yeah, there'll be there'll be a lot of missing pieces. What I'd love is for you to be able to actually do you know all the work, and then me, the coder, can you know sit back and do things like database and APIs and all that kind of stuff. Or, or don't you think maybe a better way to put it would be for like me and Dave, not necessarily to do all the work, but to do all the diddling, mm 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. Which is, okay, here's the thing, and it animates from A to B. But now you're done, and now me and Dave would just sit there and tweak parameters like, uh, you know, and it's funny to say this, but the physics, you know, the gravity, mm. oh, sure. the springiness, the bounciness, the speed, the acceleration, uh, to get the feel of it right. Because that mm-hmm. is, a, and that's a huge, it really is, it's a huge part of Vesper, it's a huge part of almost all what, what people would consider modern apps is the physics of how the, when things move. Like, it's not enough to just say animate from A to B. You've really got to specify those things. Um, and making that more of a central part of the built-in tools, I think, would be a huge step forward. I mean, we've we've hacked around it with... Uh, with our own thing, the DB, oh, DB5, DB5, yeah. where we can set it, but we're still going through to do that. We're still going through a, a compile, compile, build, run, reinstall on the device cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, I've said this before, but one of the coolest things that I've seen was the, uh, from when, when Mike Mattis was developing the push pop press app for, uh, for Al Gore. And I saw a pre-release version of it, and his Mattis's version on his phone had on a, a special internal wasn't you know was never going to ship to the public, but a settings screen where he had sliders to adjust certain you know pretty much to give you the uh, god level uh, control over the physics mm-hmm. of of the book's universe, and you could set how heavy images are so that when you flick to close them, you know, do they feel like they're light? Do they feel like they're heavy? Um, and so that it, it seemed like a cool way to do that. And then he could come to the developer and say, here's for the next beta, here's the, the physics settings that I, you know, let's try this and we ship it to the, and, but he didn't have to go through a, uh, build and run and install in Xcode and reinstall it on his app every time he wanted to twiddle one. Mm, That's nice. What he really needs, and maybe he did have is a, is a, button where I like these settings. Uh, yeah. Email this to the developer. Or yeah. yeah. Something like that. Yep. That would be cool. Uh, let me take a third break and thank our next sponsor. And it's our good friends at lynda.com. L-Y-N-D-A.com. Uh, lynda.com has over 2,000 high quality and engaging video courses taught by industry experts with new courses being added daily. For all I know, there's more than 2,000 now. Uh, They have a wide breadth of courses from beginner to advanced, and they cover things ranging from purely design to pure development and all sorts of stuff in between. Other things like photography. Uh, Some of the things that might interest people who are listening to the talk show, they have iOS developer courses, uh, Unix for Mac OS X users, so if you've ever wanted to learn your way around the terminal, um, that sort of thing. Uh, Objective-C fits this show perfectly. iOS 7 SDK, new features. So uh, if you're already an iOS developer, but you want to see what's new in iOS 7, they have a course on that. Uh, Web development courses. uh, They have Perl, ASP.NET, PHP, MySQL, uh, JavaScript, of course. Creative Cloud, so uh, Photoshop, InDesign, everything like that. So many videos. It's unbelievable. Um, Here's the best thing, though. The best thing is that you can sign up for a seven-day free trial. And during your free trial, 
you can watch as many of these videos as you want. Uh, that's how sure they are that you'll be you'll want to sign up. And when you do sign up, uh, you can sign up for a plan where you just have unlimited access to their videos. And so you don't have to, if you're thinking like, I think I want to get this, you, you're already signed up. You're signed up with a subscription. You don't have to worry, hey, is this video going to be what I want? You can just start watching it and see if it's what you want. How do you get this seven-day free trial? Easy. Go to lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com, slash the talk show. Lynda.com slash the talk show. You get a seven day free trial. Watch these videos. Uh, you, you have nothing to lose. It's fantastic. So, my thanks to Lynda.com. Absolutely fantastic, high quality videos. Uh, seven day free trial. My thanks to Lynda.com. Uh, anything else you want to talk about programming wise? So, here's something you don't know about me it's not programming. Okay. Um, I'm an espresso user. Oh, really? Yes. So now's your chance. Ask me what I see in these. What is it that you see in these? It's so damn easy. <laughs> and that's really it. You know, I, I literally have no idea how much it costs. And I don't care if it's $40 a pound of coffee. But I have two cups of espresso every day. Um, and the same ones, you know, I have one of one flavor, one of the other. And it's just... Uh, you know, it takes like just a few seconds. I never have to think, and it's really good. And that's it. It is no more complicated than that. This is this thing I was I was writing about yesterday. That I'm curious that there's these these new pod based uh, coffee making machines. There's the what you have the Nespresso, and what's the other one? The uh, K Pod, like Keurig, something like that. Keurig or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Uh, uh and I just didn't get it. That, that, in other words, per pound of coffee, you end up paying a premium, a significant premium. Yeah. And I just didn't get it. I wasn't putting it down. I just didn't see the appeal. And I, um, I've heard from two very different groups of people, like on Twitter, who 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 are fans of these things. And it seems like the bigger the bigger group is the people who value the truly value the convenience. Mm-hmm. That however easy it is to make drip coffee, this is just way easier. Um. But the second group is your group, the the, because uh, you make you're making espresso, right? Yeah, yeah, the espresso drinkers, and that's I think, I think it's because making espresso traditionally was is a mess, right? Yeah, and it, and it, and requires significantly complex. I see that maybe that's where I'm missing out. Like I like espresso when I can get it, like at a restaurant, but at home I just make drip coffee. And drip coffee hurts my stomach a lot, so huh. I go with espresso. Um, and it used to be I had a Krups, and I would make I would make four shots at a time, four times a day, sixteen shots a day is how I got through. And that was a lot of damn work, right? To sit there with my Krups and, and grind the grind the beans and pound them in and all this stuff four times a day. And I was just wired as hell, of course. Um, <laughs> It's so much then, espresso. Uh, it really is. Oh, God. And, and hey, that, that's how that newswire got made. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but eventually I realized, number one, I'm drinking a ton of espresso. Number two, I'm spending a crazy amount of time just making espresso and cleaning up from yeah. espresso and everything. And, you know, uh, I realized I could actually be spending that time programming and maybe not having to pee every five minutes. <laughs> 
if I had less espresso and just got a little machine that makes something really good. Uh, and so yeah, that's what I did. And now, yeah, it's a piece of cake. And, and you're down to two a day? Down to two a, t- two a day. The, the first one is kind of a double and then a, a single mm-hmm. after that. But and you, you used, and you use two different flavors? Yeah. So some of them are, are designed to be uh, long pours, basically, and some are designed to be short. Hmm. So I use uh, a long one first and follow up with a short one. And, and that's good. Yeah. My uh, former colleague, when I worked at Joint, Jason Hoffman, uh, the first time we had like an on-site, we 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 went across the street in somewhere in uh, Marin County, and and typical Marin County, you know, small town, no chain restaurants, really cool coffee shop across the street, uh, good stuff. And we're all ordering, and I got my usual, you know, drip coffee. And I remember Jason ordered a quadruple espresso. Ah, uh, yeah. And I thought, wow. And I didn't say anything. And then we sat there and drank, and we just we'd stayed in a coffee shop and and uh, just chilled out, and we drank our coffees. And then before we left, he went up to the counter to get another one. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, whoa, this. <laughs> yeah, that is totally outside my. Uh, my ability to consume coffee or caffeine. Yeah, I used to always order triple espressos just routinely when I when I was in a in a coffee shop, hmm. and would have mul- you know if I was traveling and and I'd have multiple a day just to keep the same or close to the same level I was used to from home. Yeah, I do like an espresso, but it's it's I've never I wouldn't want to try to make them at home. I also like I like the way that I can. Uh, I make about, for myself, I make about three cups of coffee. Uh, and I like the way that I keep it in a thermos so it stays warm. And I like the mm. way that it lasts for a, a long time. Yeah. That I can just slowly sip it as I as I work the first half of my day. I, I Yeah, I would enjoy it, but for, you know, it uh, hurts too much. Yeah. Which sucks. I but. did not know that about you. Yeah. Although I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Hmm. Um, do you find you do you find if you get over caffeinated you lose your ability to concentrate? Yeah, at a certain point, um, I'm just desperate not to be so over caffeinated. Um, I build up my tolerance, uh, at, you know, for a long time, such that that point was almost impossible to reach. Nevertheless, I still reached it occasionally, and my answer then was usually food, whatever. Just give me as much food as I can possibly eat, just to help me kind of relax. And that's not necessarily a great answer. I I've I, I found that when I used to work outside the house and I'd have a job and then you you I wouldn't necessarily count how much coffee I was drinking, especially if it was like in a workplace where there was you know coffee always being made or coffee available, and I would just get up as often as as soon as my cup was empty I would just get up and refill it, and then I would find like in the afternoon that I I it it really, it felt like my brain was actually like vibrating. Like mm-hmm. it was, and it was a truly, uh, well, I shouldn't say truly unpleasant, but vaguely unpleasant. And I'd, I'd, I'd like look at the clock and realize an hour had gone by and I, all I would, all I had done is open 20 new tabs, you know, of random stuff and read the first three sentences of each. Like it yeah, truly right. gave me, it gave me a, a effectively attention deficit disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, so I find that, uh, making the same amount of coffee every morning when I get up and drink, and that's all I drink every day has been a huge advantage. 
because I know it's exactly it's it makes me feel good and I feel like I'm concentrating, but it doesn't uh, doesn't even get me close to drinking too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It took me a while to learn that, but yeah, learned the same thing. Do you get headaches if you don't drink coffee? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. See, I used to. I used to get severe headaches if I woke up and went. I would say within about ninety minutes of waking up, if I hadn't had some caffeine of some sort, I would get a, a serious headache. And it would go away about 15, 20 minutes after I then consumed some caffeine. Mm-hmm. Um, but ever since I've started this sort of make one three-cup thermos of coffee a day, I, I can go – like if I wake up the next day and I – you know, like if I'm flying or something like that, uh, I don't drink coffee because I'd rather sleep in the, on the plane or try to sleep on the plane than stay awake. And I don't want to have to get up to, to pee when I'm on the plane. So, oh, right. And I don't get a headache anymore. Yeah. Huh. Well, you're lucky. I still get the headaches. On the other hand, if I have a superpower, my one superpower is the ability to sleep in any moving vehicle, car, airplane, train, doesn't matter. Out like oh, a light, a... even after coffee, doesn't matter. Ooh, that's a good gift. Yeah, it's nice. It is nice. It really stunk when I had the the sort of, I really need coffee every morning thing. Like flying was the worst to me because A, it would keep me from sleeping on the plane. B, it would probably make me have to pee. Um, but C is that the coffee you get in an airport is almost always horrendous. Yeah. I mean, even yeah, if you really get it, is. if you get it at the, before you get on the plane, mm-hmm. uh, it's usually pretty bad. Like, uh, I know at like SFO, there's a, I think depending on the terminal, Philadelphia has one too, a Pete's, but it's not really a Pete's. It's like a, it's like a, they have the Pete's logo. And they serve Pete's coffee, but it's it's like some kind of weird franchise type thing. Like they don't, mm. it doesn't taste like Pete's. It's airport Pete's. Yeah, yeah airport Pete's, and it just tastes terrible. And then you really, I, you know, makes you question, you know, why you have this addiction. <laughs> you know, I, they say the the Renaissance uh, was due to caffeine and beans. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. That uh, coffee houses were like the first, uh, uh, first fo- like form of like modern civilization. Yeah, and and they were wicked, immoral places, according. Yeah, to yeah, that was true. I too. love that idea. I love that idea. <laughs> it's great. Well, yes, yeah. we went out for coffee. The most like innocent thing you can do. <laughs> wicked, <laughs> Satanists. <laughs> uh. I also I, I I started my caffeine addiction um, purely drinking Coca Cola. Mm-hmm. I I tried coffee, and I think it was because so much coffee is just bad, and it never it never caught on. And so like when going through college, I never drank coffee. I just drank I just drank I don't know six pack of Coke a day. Huh. Uh, and I drank enough Coke like in my college years that I had the the headache problem when I'd wake up in the morning. Uh, just just from drinking Coca Cola. Uh, I assume that's regular Coke with the sugar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. boy, yeah. That on top of your six pack of beer a night, and uh, you can need some extra exercise, <laughs> right? Uh, I had a I was a real skinny teenager, and so even going, you know, until I got my twenties and that slowed down, I I, yeah. I think I was lucky enough. But even so, it was uh, I I kind of quit buying it cold turkey Coke. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, at Amy's encouragement, I was really—I mean, I was still—I don't know—twenty 
24, 23, 24, something like that. And I wasn't, I wasn't overweight in any way. She was like, just try it, just stop buying it. And, you know, and it was at a time when I had started drinking coffee. So I just stopped buying Coke and I dropped five pounds in a week. Wow, no kidding. Yeah. Cause, and we had an argument and it sounds stupid in hindsight, but I have to give her credit where, where she said, do you know how many calories a day you're consuming just in Coca-Cola? And I, my thought was, I don't, it doesn't matter how many calories are in it. It's just a liquid. So I'm, I'm urinating it out and she's like no how calories work no she's like no dummy it doesn't work like that and i really thought that like if you're drinking it it cannot possibly be like making you fat and so i quit like on a bet with her i just stopped buying it stopped drinking it and weighed myself every day and within a week i dropped five pounds Uh uh-huh you you didn't perform the thought experiment. Well, what if I dissolved a bunch of sugar and some water and drank <laughs> well, it? <laughs> I know. There's, I'm, here's a story where I'm laying out how how stupid I can be. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. Well, right. I had a I had a sim- similar thing. I I was overweight. It was my early 30s, and uh, I switched from regular Coke to Diet Coke, um, and that was the only change I made. And over the course of a summer, I lost 20 pounds. <laughs> it's, yeah. Well, and I, I hadn't seen things. Like, there was no YouTube at the time. So, like, you can go there now and you can easily Google, like, uh, or, you know, use YouTube search and find, like, how much sugar is in a can of Coke? And they'll put, like, uh, 12 ounces of water out and, and they pour the sugar to show you how much sugar is in there. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's you know it's like you're eating if you're drinking a six pack of Coke a day you're you're effectively eating like a bag of sugar, yeah. Your daily cake, right? So I, I you know, in hindsight, it was a foolish bet to take, but it did it was a bad habit. Yeah, yeah no kidding. Does coffee have a lot of calories? I don't know. I don't put anything in my coffee, so I'm yeah. I'm, uh, I don't think it has that mu- that many. Yeah, because I figure like the most right. calories it could have is whatever it would be to eat. The equivalent in raw beans. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so it can't be that bad. Yeah, I never. You know, I've it. often wondered about popcorn, right? Because when if you're making popcorn, you're only pouring out like a little bit of corn. It's right. not that much corn. You can say it's a handful. Right. And if you don't and butter it, it, pops up big. But yeah, it's you know how bad can it be? Yeah, I of course think, I butter it like crazy, but still. Whatever. I think the problem with it is that corn is is such a sugary vegetable. Mm-hmm. Right, like you know, the argument I've heard is it really shouldn't even count as a vegetable. It's, you know, it's a lot of sugar. It's an industrial product these days. Yeah. So I don't know. It might be. It's not a lot. You're right, though, that it's you know, like if you just ate the raw kernels, it's not that much. Yeah. Because I only make I make about a half cup, and that's good for uh, a big bowl for me and Amy and Jonas. So, mm-hmm. so I figure I only get what. It's a, a third of a half. Uh, I don't know. Like once, I don't know. Yeah, one sixth. sixth. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, it's it's not that much. How, how do you make your popcorn? Uh, we have this thing called a Whirly Pop, and we bought. This is like one of the best purchases I ever made. I made. The, I bought this thing in like 1999 at a uh, like a crate and barrel, and it's just a big. I don't know what it's made out of, aluminum or something. A big aluminum pot. And it has a handle with like a little crank on it that mm-hmm. turns like a little propeller at the bottom of the pan. Mm. So you put it on a stove, put a little oil in there, uh, heat it up, medium high, wait until the oil is smoking. And we use, I use like a high heat sapphire, sapphire oil. Mm-hmm. Wait till the oil is smoking, then pour a half cup of popcorn in there and you just, you know, twirl this uh, 
thing on the handle and it spins this propeller at the bottom of the thing so that the kernels keep moving in the oil. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it takes about a minute and, uh, and you have fresh hot popcorn. Oh, cool. How do you make it? Uh, maybe I'll check that out. I'm, I've got a hot air popper. Hmm. So it's not popping in any oil or anything. It's, right. um, you know, and if I were not to butter and salt the popcorn, well, it'd be bland, but it would also be, I suppose, healthier. Yeah. Um, it, and it works nicely. Um, yeah. But I'm open to alternatives. Uh, but then, so my my main innovation, though, is uh, obviously I melt the butter, just do it in the microwave. But then I put a bunch of Tabasco in my butter, so I have really spicy popcorn. Mm. And it's good. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Uh, use and salt it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got to salt the hell out of it. If yeah, there's not yeah, like a no, whole bunch no of salt kidding. at the bottom of the bowl, it's then then I've lost. Yeah. 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 Uh, I haven't had hot air popcorn since like the eighties, mm -hmm. like when they first invented it. And it was I remember then it was like a it was like a revolution because it was yeah. I guess it's because it, I think in the 80s, it was like in the whole like uh, Jane Fonda workout. It was like when people first started getting health conscious as like a pop cultural thing. And if you make hot air popcorn and you don't do anything to it, it was, you know, it was pretty good. You know, there's nothing you can complain about. Low calorie and no, sure, nothing yeah. bad for you. Yeah. Of course. Also, no, no flavor, no texture, but whatever. <laughs> You know what I don't like? I'll tell you what I don't like. And I know probably this is how most people make popcorn. Don't like the microwave popcorn. Nah, I can't do it. The, the penalty for doing it wrong when you burn it is that terrible, terrible, terrible smell. Yeah, like, exactly. Like go away for a while. And like it's having experienced that once, uh, you know, it's just not worth the risk. Even well, it, it, it's like, hey, we're going to put a movie in. We're going to watch a movie. I'll go make popcorn. And it's I, at this point, it's nothing but good times ahead. Popcorn that I'm suddenly hungry for and a m movie I've never seen coming up. What could be a better way to spend an evening with the family? And then you burn the popcorn in the microwave and then you're not hungry for it. Like yeah. You can throw it out and make another one, but it's like it's already yeah, the bad smell. It turns you off of it. Yeah, right. And now, you, yeah, you just kind of want to watch the movie by now. You spent way too much time right. in the kitchen, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, my favorite thing about my hot air popcorn popper, though, I think, is at the very end when almost all of it's popped, except for a few kernels, and it just starts throwing them at me like, <laughs> randomly. It, it's almost like a little, like, it's kind of a violent exercise, which I don't mind. That's actually, it's part of the poetry of it. I also, I also have a bad association with microwave popcorn, which is that I, I spent a year at Drexel living in a dorm, um... It was just called they, it was just a typical Drexel. It was just called the Tower because I guess nobody gave them any money to put their name on it. <laughs> uh, Sixteen story dormitory, and I was pretty high up. I forget what floor I was on, but it was towards the top. And it had notoriously fickle smoke detectors, and so we had fire alarms constantly. I mean, it was just over and over and over again. And of course, once there's a fire alarm, you've got to take the steps. And it was just the biggest pain in the ass. And inevitably, it was always somebody burned microwave popcorn. <laughs> of course. And so it was like, why why can't we make a rule? Can, can't we just ban microwave popcorn? Let's just ban it. It keeps setting off. And, you know, never the, never went anywhere. I Although I never, rule. I never actually filed an actual complaint that they should ban it. I just would complain. 
Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, let me <laughs> like thank... every good college student. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, let me thank our final sponsor. It's it's our good friends at Backblaze. Online backup, five dollars a month. Native, it's unlimited, unthrottled, uncomplicated. Uh, you sign up for five dollars a month. It backs up your whole Mac, everything, your external drives too, to the cloud. You think, well, that must take a long time at first. Well, it could. It could take. It could take a couple of days. Might take a week, depending on your your broadband. But then once you've got that initial backup complete, it's all incremental. It happens in the background. You don't have to do anything. You just install their their native uh, Mac app. It's written by app ex Apple engineers. It's a cool app. Doesn't uh, screw up your system in any way. Uh, and without doing anything, your entire Mac is backed up to the cloud. Uh, there's no add-ons. There's no gimmicks. There's no additional charges. You just pay $5 per month per computer for unlimited, unthrottled backup. Uh, I always say, when I, when I do these reads, I always say, you know, the best part about this is that it's off-site. You know, that having a backup next to your computer on a, uh, like a super duper clone drive or a, um, um, I'm drawing a blank. What's the, the thing on Mac OS 10 called, uh, oh, time capsule, time capsule, yeah. uh, time machine, right? A time machine yeah. drive or a time capsule. That stuff's great too. And it's convenient and it's faster, but I'll tell you what, here's a perfect example. I was just last night, one day ago, where uh, Jonas's little league is starting up and we had a, a get to get to know the team meeting with the other dads. Um, and there was a, another, another kid who we'd played with two years ago. So I already knew his dad and we were like, Hey, what's up? You know, what's been going on ends up they just six months ago, they had a fire in their house. Uh, they've been living in an apartment since wasn't too bad. Nobody got hurt. It was a, a Something happened with their dryer at like seven, and they were run, you know, just running the dryer down in the basement. Here's the thing: his home office was in the same basement. His computer was right there, and mm. his backup was uh, on an external hard drive right next to his computer. Uh, that's the exact type of situation where Backblaze can save, literally save, save your uh, save your data, because having that drive right next to your computer, something like that happens, you need an offsite backup. Uh, he ended up getting lucky. He he actually got to save his data, but he had to go through one of those expensive um, uh, drive saver things. It was like the the actual like enclosure was uh, destroyed, but the you know one of those expensive data um, saver things got got his stuff off this drive. But uh, you could say even if even in that case where the good news is he saved his data, could save a lot of money, but five dollars a month using Backblaze. And a lot, a lot of anxiety saved. Too, exactly, sure. you sleep yeah. when you use Backblaze and you have an offsite backup. It, you sleep better. Trust me. Yeah. Uh, where do you go to find out more? www.backblaze.com/slash/daringfireball. I've gotten a lot better at that since they're a regular sponsor. I used to first couple times. Uh, I would always say Blackblaze or uh -huh, Blackblaze, right, sure. and it ends up that they uh, they have that domain. Do they? <laughs> Good for them. Yeah. Blackblaze.com redirects to backblaze.com. So you can go either way. Uh, here, all right. Here's one more thing I want to talk about. Little thing. And it seems like the type of thing that you would have an opinion on. I do too. And that is um, that Google 
has recently stopped underlining links in their um, search results. I do have an opinion about that. And The Verge had a story on this where they sort of like, they said like, they, they gave Google like a welcome to 1998, uh, you know, that <laughs> as though underlining links, uh, you know, has been outdated for 10 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I plan to underline links on Daring Fireball until, until the end of time. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what, what is your opinion on this? Well, I don't underline links on my blog. Um, and pr probably the first thing I do in setting up a new CSS file for any new site is to turn off link underlining. So, yeah, welcome to 1998. True. On the other hand, in this particular case, underlined links on the Google search results is just the way Google search works. And when they turned that off, I, I felt like my brain couldn't under, understand what I was looking at. You know, the, the UI of their search result is something so many people are familiar with. And um, it's, it's almost like we understand it in some deeper part of our brain by now, just because it's so familiar and so used. For them to make a change like that, um, it kind of like, bur it burns a bunch of brain cells, even though it seems like such a small thing. So you, I feel like we have the opposite opinion where I feel like uh, I didn't even notice that Google turned them off uh, because I feel like everything in Google search results is a link. Mm -hmm. Whereas what I'm thinking is within Daring Fireball that it, it, when an individual word in a story is, is a link, uh, I want it to be underlined and in other ones too. I, I just feel like if a word in an article is a link, I, to me, that's what underlining means. Underlining means this is a link. But I, don't, I didn't even notice it in Google because I just assume that everything is a link. Surprisingly, things aren't a link. Like the actual URL on the right. search results page is not a link, which bothered me for years. How can you show me a URL that isn't a link? Yeah, that still is weird to me. Yeah. And now and, that and I don't know the answer. Yeah, and now that they're not underlining them, it seems even weirder, right? Because the mm -hmm. blue things, the blue and purple ones are links, but the green ones aren't, even though they are the URL. So I felt like yeah. at least when they were underlining them, there was some consistency there where only the underlined things are links. Mm -hmm. um, but I try to keep an open mind about this. So my, here's my thinking. My thinking is that in traditional typography, and Guy English and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, you should never underline anything. Like that whole thing that some of us grew up with, where you, like a book title should be underlined in a report or something like that, was all because it was pre-word processing in computers. It was when, you know, it was based on this, what you could do on a typewriter. And since right. you couldn't italicize on a typewriter, underlining was the best we could do. And so like when you t were typing a manuscript for a book, if you wanted a word italicized, you'd underline it. It was a, you know, that's what the, when the manuscript would go from the editing to the typesetters, when they saw something underlined, they wouldn't underline it in the actual novel, they would italicize it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that if you can use proper italics and bold and even small caps and, and all sorts of nice typographic things like that, there's never any reason to underline anything. And so I thought one of the genius things of the original web was that they took this needless typographic uh, thing, the underlining, and gave it a new meaning, which meant instead of like giving it emphasis or indicating a title or something like that, it meant this is a link. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah, and and that is that that was a smart move. Um, just that aesthetically, though, a lot of sites don't look so great with all those underlines. Your site's different, though. You're not using color for your links. Yeah. So you kind of use one or the other. Right? right. And since you're not using color, you have to have an underline for sure. Yeah, I thought about that. So I want, like I said, I want to keep an open mind. I thought, well, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe I should reevaluate that. And But then I thought, well, then how would I indicate a link? Because I don't have a color palette to work with. And if I picked like a subtle, you know, I think something subtle that would fit with the Daring Fireball color scheme would be a huge usability nightmare mm-hmm. because it would it would be too easy to miss that it's a that it's a link yeah right but do you worry do you worry about like uh because i think about that i try to think about like color blindness and stuff like that do you worry like on inessential that your links don't stand out to people who are colorblind um i i don't worry uh, partly because no one's ever complained um yeah, maybe that's a cop-out but i also think at least I hope, that the accessibility stuff has uh, progressed to the point where it deals with those kinds hmm. of things uh, for me. Because, you know, at that level, the software knows what's a link and what isn't and can do the appropriate things. I don't think that I, I'm... Is there something, though, if you're colorblind, that you can set your browser to somehow always highlight links you know, in a color? I'm not yeah. aware of anything like that. I don't know. You know, I, I haven't looked at it enough. I think that for the like the truly vision impaired, you know, for people who are blind or nearly blind who use special software for that, then it does, you know, highlight mm-hmm. links. But I think for people whose only, you know, um, issue with their vision is color blindness, that you know, depending on what colors you pick, and I know that you know, you, there's there's some cool apps that you can use that test that layer like simulate this using common forms of color blindness. Mm-hmm. But you think, so you think underlining, you can, you think it's a-okay to, to not underline links? Yeah, well, we've been doing it, we've been not underlining links for many, many years now. Hmm. And, and the web seems to have gotten by, okay. Right. It does make, and so for example, and it's in a way that, like you said, like the way that Google search results are laid out have, have sort of like, somehow it insinuated themselves just one level up from our lizard brains yeah. over the years. And I think that explains why all other search engines effectively copy that style. I don't even think it's like a shamelessness. I think it's because we, we you know, like Bing, for example, is, lar- you know, the search results are largely formatted. It's not exactly a pixel-for-pixel pixel clone, but it's pretty much the same fonts and sizes as, as Google. Uh I almost think it's because if they didn't, it would just be automatically rejected. Yeah, I think that's right. When people talk about something being intuitive, what they often really mean is, oh, it works just like this other thing I know about already. And so that's that's the case. Bing's intuitive as long as it looks and works like Google. Right. Like, uh, like you know, I don't even, I don't know if it's a good analogy or not, but remember when, when Pepsi came out with Crystal Pepsi? Mm-hmm. It was cola, and it tasted like Pepsi, but it was clear like Sprite, and it lasted, I think, about a week. Yeah, and I think it was because people, you know, if it tastes like Coke or Pepsi, it tastes like a cola. It has to be brown. Yeah, that's right. And I feel like the same way. I feel like if you made a, like a lemon lime soda, something like a Sprite or a Seven Up, but you colored it like Pepsi, it would be it it would be revolting. Yeah, it'd be terrible. Yeah. 
you wouldn't, you know, and I feel like you, you were just hooked up to expect search results to look like that. I have to admit, though, now that I just quick toggle between a Bing result and Google result, the, the lack of underlines in the Google result does look pretty clean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it just struck me as very weird, though, and, and hasn't stopped striking me yeah. that way. But you it's definitely like, you noticed. Know, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right away. I'm like, ah. <laughs> and yeah, I, I cursed at it, actually. <laughs> it is the sort of thing and and for all the stuff you know the other various things that google does i mention this every couple of weeks on the show it's that there's you know an android i'm not a fan of and there's all sorts of stuff about it google that you know pundit wise i'm probably you know if you want to say pro google or anti google i'm anti google i still have to say google search is is one of the to me one of the eight wonders of the modern world and and mm -hmm. and we we all even if you think about it you're you can't help but take it for granted yeah uh, right yeah and i still i think google knows that internally because they've you know and they've toyed with the advertising that they place in some ways and i know that recently you know that that they've changed they've sort of toggled the way that um they've made the the paid the sponsored results a little bit less easily discerned from the regular results. But on the whole, given how important it is to the company, you know, and, and how much of their revenue comes from search ads and everything, they, they've stayed incredibly true to the original idea of Google search all the way back to, you know, I don't know, 1996 or whenever it was when it was a beta. Mm -hmm. 99, I don't even know. But it's... Yeah, it's still very recon recognizably the same thing. Right. Uh, the, the, I think the thing I don't like is is integration with the Google Plus social graph and like trying to figure out what I want to see based on what my friends have searched for or something. Yeah. I don't even know how all that stuff works. It's like, no, I want the, I want what your regular algorithm would give me, you know? Yeah, exactly. I want uh, you to know nothing about me. Yeah, yeah, basically. You know, and like if I wanted to search for... um something local, I, you know, like a Yelp type thing where I want to find, you know, a good bagel place near where I am right now, I would use something specific. I wouldn't, I don't want Google search to solve that problem for me. I mean, Google can mm -hmm. give me something to do that, but, you know, make it like a separate, like Google local or something like that. I want google.com search to just be generic. Everybody in the world who types in the same thing as me should get the same results. Yeah. This, this is kind of the, the front page of the web that we all have in common. Yeah, I would say so. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, last thing I want to talk about is I want to talk about your new podcast and that's, uh, it's called the record. Mm -hmm. You're doing it with, uh, our mutual good friend, Chris Parrish. Um, so tell me about the record. So for a few years, I, I, had this in mind as a project where I wanted to uh, capture the history of our of our developer community, Mac and now iOS developers. And for some part of the time, I thought about doing it as a book. Um, but then about two years ago, I realized, you know, this is probably better as a podcast. You know, it can always be transcribed or bookified later. But the easiest way is to actually just record the interviews and, and publish them. Uh, so I thought about that for a while. And then 
it became a little more urgent to me when I saw at the uh, Experience Music Project Museum here in town, uh, a Nirvana exhibit. And uh, I was lucky enough to go to, go to college in, in Olympia in the late 80s and saw Nirvana play at dorm rooms and everything. So went to this exhibit and, you know, they had things that, you know, roommates and friends of mine, uh, you know, were involved with. And there was a lot of like my own uh, personal history, you know, right there. But then I also realized there's a whole lot of stuff that happened then that just was never recorded. Um, uh, you know, a whole lot of history and stories just gone because we didn't, didn't realize at the time it was special, uh, even though it was. And it's a lot of type of stuff. It's such a great, great show, but it's stories that I, you know, some of them I've heard, but a lot of them are things that you hear at like, uh, you know, six o'clock having beers on a Wednesday during WWDC, mm -hmm. you know, and they're not, like you said, they're not recorded anywhere. Right. And you say like, Hey, here's so-and-so. I haven't seen this guy in 10 years. What are you up to? And then it's remember that time or remember this. And then you get the story, but then it's, you know, like you said, it's not recorded anywhere, which sort of, you know, plays right in to the title of the show, the record. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, it's a lot of fun to do. And, and Chris and I have, you know, uh, great plans for the future. There's all kinds of, all kinds of, uh, one season I hope we do is, um, uh, early indie heroes. So the idea would be to record the people who were indies, uh, before me. Right. So people like Rich Siegel, Dave Weiner, Mark Aldrich, uh, Peter Lewis. Uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of people. And I would just love that because there's a lot of history there that, uh, I don't even know, but I, I'm sure yeah. these, these folks would have some great stories. I would imagine that, I think, I really do, and I'm just saying this because I'm your friend, I really do think, it's such a great show, but I really do think that for people who listen to the talk show, who are looking for more shows to listen to, man, this has got to be right up their alley. Uh, and I think and I think it could easily also separate it into, for two reasons. One People who've never heard of these things, they're great stories, and it's some great products and technologies and stuff that maybe they'll hear about for the first time. And then the second group, probably, you know, let's just face it, the maybe slightly older group, or people or and or people who've at least been using a Mac or doing nerdy stuff on a Mac for a longer period of time, who are going to hear about these things again and be like, oh my God, I had totally forgotten about that. Mm -hmm. right. And you guys, if you just go, the the website is therecord.co, which is, I've told you, is an incredibly awesome domain name. Um, go to therecord.co and you'll see there's six episodes so far. You guys, in addition to doing great shows, you guys kill it and just absolutely positively put me to shame on the show notes. I love doing the show notes. So Chris does the editing. I do the show notes. And I just, I basically sit down with headphones on and every time there's any proper noun of any kind, uh, I, I type it up until I have, you know, anywhere from 75 to 150 or so. And I have to go find links for everything. It's, but it's phenomenal. And if you just go through, and especially if you were around in like the late eighties, early nineties, uh, indie Mac community or just the Mac nerd community at all, you're going to see keywords in your list of these things. That, and you can be like, I totally forgot about that. Like one of the ones that stuck out to me was from an episode a couple of shows ago. Um, and this was just in the show notes, but Metro works Ron. 
I had oh, totally yeah. forgotten about him. <laughs> yep. I had totally forgotten about MetroWorks, Ron. Yeah. What a guy. <sighs> what a great time that was, too. It was yeah. a fantastic time. Oh, yeah. Because I think that that was the whole time. I mean, because uh, I, I, I'd say the MetroWorks time was probably the mid-90s. And so mm-hmm. it, it coincided, Not I think, by definitely not coincidentally with the the decline of Apple, right? That was the time when Apple was, was in, in trouble. Tough period, yeah. Tough sure. period. Where the indie Mac developer community has never was never before and has never since been so independent of Apple. Like to call them an indie community is understating it. It really was like there were two worlds. There was the Apple world and the indie Mac world. And the indie mm-hmm. Mac world was way ahead. You know, we had our oh, own, yeah. you know, we had MetroWorks, we had our own development environment which was better than what Apple was shipping. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and you mentioned Peter Lewis. Like Peter Lewis, almost single-handedly brought the internet to the Mac. Oh yeah, I mean, and with all sorts of you know between Anarchy and Mac TCP Watcher and all this stuff. Yeah, Finger, Finger, yeah, right. Finger used to be an important tool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, I know that the, the people who don't remember it are probably have, are going to guess very wrong what what Finger did, but. Uh, you know, if you wanted to finger from the Mac, Peter had you covered. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous to think back that uh, Mac TCP was a third party. Uh, yeah, right. Tool. So if you wanted to get your Mac on the internet, you needed a third party tool. And then you had to get a Mac Slip or. Right, whatever you know, Mac PPP, yeah, yet another thing, right? To right, your modem and all this stuff. Right, but once we were on the web, wow, that right. was amazing. And all that stuff came from outside Apple. Yep. No, uh, fantastic show. Uh, I really, really, I'm again. I'm not just saying this because Brent's my friend, but I really think that talk show listeners are going to, if you haven't already subscribed, you're going to love this show. And uh, just by looking at the show notes, it it should convince you. Uh, and the website is therecord.co. Latest episode is Tim Wood, CTO of uh, Omni Group. Tim's fantastic. Obviously, you should know about the Omni Group. What's cool about them is they're all Nexties rather than Apple people, right. which is you know, uh, interesting. I wasn't there for that those stories, so it's really cool to hear. Yeah, I bet those are great. I bet that's great. Uh, I did not know he was CTO. Yeah. He's a good guy. Definitely. Yeah, one of the best. Let me see. I'm going to pick something from the show notes there. Oh, Will Shipley. There you go. <laughs> you know it's a good show if Will gets mentioned. Uh, yep. Anyway, there you go. Find out more at therecord.co. Brent, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks, John. Very uh, fun. I'll uh, talk to you soon. Yeah, cool. <laughs>